We are in part 18 of our Hebrew series entitled Our Faithful High Priest, and today's message is entitled Reeling in Awe. And I want to consider the power of God. I've got a couple thoughts, going to give you the fill in the blank, and then we are going to spend some time in the Old Testament before we begin. And I want to begin with a concept of the fear of God. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, if there is no fear of God, we have yet to even begin with right thinking and good decisions and an ability to navigate this world. But what does the fear of God mean? Why in the world should we fear God? Well, simply put, because he can send you to eternal torment. There you go. Pretty straightforward. He is the designer of our reality, which means he has made you and he can unmake you. He can alter all of existence in but a thought and you'd never even know it because it has been undone. Our God is ferocious, a warrior God. We saw that demonstrated so much in the Old Testament, but then in the New Testament, he began to unravel even more parts of of his personality, and we began to see so much of his compassion pour forward. But let's make no mistake, the Old Testament and New Testament are the same God. We have judgment in the Old Testament, judgment in the New Testament, compassion and grace in the Old Testament, compassion and grace in the New. It's just unveiling more and more of who God is. So why ought we to fear God? Because he's huge, massive, and all-powerful. Uh, there is many different analogies we can use, but I would hope that as we talk about the fear of God, I would like you to go back in your mind to any time you've been around something mighty. Maybe for some of you, uh, you've had an opportunity maybe to be around a waterfall that was so mad- majestic and magnificent that it was pounding down and you thought, that's bigger than me. Uh, unfortunately, many of us, uh, live in lives where things that are smaller than us surround us, things that we can manipulate, things that we can maneuver. Some of us, based on our work, get a chance to see things that are bigger. And I would like to have all of us have a slight nervousness when being near God. Because at any moment, he can erupt into the mighty force that he is. I'll give you an idea. Um, I was some years ago. I went on uh, horseback riding by the beach. I don't know if you've ever got a chance to do that. I've had a couple opportunities to do that. And this one particular place, uh, I feel somewhat guilty about because you know how there's some horseback riding stables where you know full well these horses are eating better than you are, and then there's some stables that are just shy of glue factory. If you know what I mean. Where these little guys, uh, they lost their spirit about 30 years prior. And they're, you know, they just kind of go, you know what, dude, I got to take you for a ride. Just get me back home. I have no interest in you whatsoever. Well, we were unfortunately one of those. Now, these horses uh, knew, hey, we leave the stable, we go down the path, we walk on the beach, we come back around, get off me, I'm done, Right. Now, they, they were just doing it on normal, you know, thing, and they were super slow. Partly, you would kind of, every once in a while, the horse would just stop, and you're like, I think he fell asleep. I'm quite certain 
the horse just is like, oh, what? Oh, yeah, sure, and just keeps going. Now, I was on a horse that was a little larger than the other ones. I don't know if that was speaking to my weight or what it was, but his name was Emerald. Now, I'll never forget this. Emerald uh, was going along with the program, and you could tell he was just kind of mellow. So we go along, and when we rounded the corner to get back to the stable, we had to parallel a street, and a car backfired. Now, a car backfiring sounds an awful lot like a gunshot. Well, Emerald woke up, and he jumped and started to run. Now, at one moment, I realized I do not factor in Emerald's life at all. At 200 pounds, he doesn't care. He didn't even feel me on his back. It was like all of a sudden the muscles ripped out, and he was like, I'm out of here, right? Now... Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin your life here, but, uh, spoiler alert, uh, if you've seen the Avengers, all right, now I grew up a comic book fan and I love comic books. And if you've had an opportunity to see, uh, the recent Avengers movie, which has zero spiritual value whatsoever. <laughs> so I've seen it twice. <laughs> uh, they have a they have a character in there uh, that's been known for years as the Incredible Hulk. Um, the character they portray in this particular movie is one of the most fascinating transformations because it goes from regular Bruce Banner guy, and then all of a sudden he becomes the Hulk. And the way they do it in their graphics is you're nervous about what he becomes. The amount of muscles and the rage that breaks out into this character, everybody's unsettled. And the strength that is exuded is so over the top. What I'm trying to get you to do is picture in your mind when we begin to talk about God, that as much as you go up next to him and you worship him and he says that he wants a hug from you and you know that he's your heavenly father and he's the one that whispers to you. He's the one that watches you while you sleep. He's the one that holds you when you cry. At any moment, he can rip his shirt and become massive at any moment. That just because he has been gentle does not mean he is not mighty. Should we fear God? Absolutely. Because he is worthy to be feared. However, what we have found is that there is another piece that has caused our minds to have. The other part of that is that we live now because of the blood of Jesus Christ under the era of grace. What grace is, is unmerited favor. You don't deserve it. Grace, in my definition, is this. I know that who you are and what you have become and what you have done is wicked, but I have paid for that. Grace allows us to approach the throne of God. Grace allows us to give God a hug and walk boldly into the throne room. Because we have grown up under that environment, because some of us grew up in the church, we have allowed grace to make us believe that God is weak or merely just a nice guy. In no way do I appreciate when the world says that my Jesus is just a nice guy and a good teacher. I find that offensive. 
because Jesus is so much more than that. But because of his grace, we have lost some of our fear of God. So how do we reconcile fear of God and the grace of God? Because in one sense, I have a mixed audience, right? In one sense, I have some of you that come from a legalistic, dysfunctional, spiritual abusive background. And I'm trying to get you closer to God so that you might give him a hug and not run away in fear. The other half of you, I'm trying to get you to take God seriously and not just assume that God's word is an opinion that you can take or leave. How do I then minister to both sides at the same time while not condemning one, but in the other sense, not letting the other off the hook? I've found that one of the most beautiful places that blend the two in their proper way is the issue of awe. When you love God and you are right near him because you believe him to be good. But he rips out the power of the Holy Spirit and rocks your world. That is a good place to be. Because at a moment you realize that your daddy is strong and mighty. The reason why these things matter to us so desperately in this day and age is that many of us have shrunk God in our minds to where he is no longer bigger than our problems. And it's creating a lot of anxiety for you. A lot of anxiety for me. One of the things that frustrates me most is that I actually have a very high fear of God in my life. The more and more I analyzed it, even from first message last night to now, I've realized that actually my fear of God is very, very intense. But here's what's frustrating to me. Instead of allowing that to be the blessing that it is supposed to be, Satan has distorted it, and it is the very undercurrent of my panic disorder, which threatens me every day. So it seems that no matter how we try to view God appropriately, there is always the enemy that is seeking to skew it In some way, what I'm asking you to do along with me is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And let's look at God rightly. Amen. The reason why this is so important for this year, for this time, is the fill in the blank in front of you. And it's simply this. In this year of faithfulness, we would say this. Faithfulness is not possible apart from rightful fear of God. Faithfulness is not possible apart from rightful fear of God. It is one of the reasons why some Christian marriages survive. Because you realize that it's no longer about, do I feel like my partner is worthy of respect? Do I feel that my partner is worthy of love? It is my heavenly father is holding us both accountable. And I made a covenant and a contract before my Lord and out of fear of God, I must do certain things and behave appropriately to my spouse. When you have a fear of God, you don't get to make up your own rules. You don't get to just pick and choose what commitments you hold. You do not get a chance to say, I'm going to break this particular vow or agreement You actually are under submission to God. 
Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, because I'm just going to have you listen to the first beginning portions. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. Uh, last night, first service, I tried to have people follow along with me what I'm about to read, and it caused a little more confusion than normal. So if you would like some of those passages later, we can try to make those available to you. Because basically I'm starting in Exodus 19, and then I'll jump to 24, and I'm going to give you a reading about a scenario of man seeing God. So I'm going to kind of attach all these stories together and, and read through it for you. And just to put your mind at ease, my intro takes up half the entire sermon. So in case you're going, oh my gosh, he just started and we're ready to go. Okay, one other thing, just thought I'd let you guys know. Service ends at 45 after, not at the half hour. Just thought I'd let you know that. Because everyone's looking going, dang, that guy's 15 minutes late every time. No, I'm right on time. So I get that your body decided that you were done. However, we are not done. Okay, let's move on. Here we go. Now, this story begins three months after the walk out of Egypt, what we know as the Exodus. Underneath Moses' leadership, God demonstrated to the Israelite people that he would set them free. He was their deliverer. He rained down ten mighty plagues, the last of which we deem the time of the Passover, where there was not one Egyptian household without death. That came that night. God literally sent his angel to slaughter people while they slept. For all houses that did not have the blood of the lamb on the doorframe as an act of faith. As all that happened, you have the Israelites march out of Egypt, half scared, half excited. They run out, get stuck between a rock and a hard place. God holds back the water in walls. They march through and enter into the wilderness. Three months after that event, they gather at Mount Sinai, gathering at the base of the mountain in the wilderness. And there's a lot of them. Now you would say, well, surely their faith is high at this point. I would suggest back to you, it takes only a few hours to forget what happened at church. It takes but a few days to forget a prayer request being answered. And it takes a few months to forget a miracle. So as much as we would believe that we would have more of a fear of God if if he would do more amazing things in our midst, I would suggest to you that only if he continually does them because our minds slip so rapidly. Three months after that, they're gathered at Mount Sinai, and this is what happens. God calls Moses to the mountain, and he tells them instructions for the people. And he says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, be faithful. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Moses brings that to the people. They agree to follow God. He brings that report back to God. And God tells Moses, you have three days to prepare the people for I'm going to come visit you. Behold, in three days, I am coming to you in a thick cloud on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. He gives them instructions on how to get ready. And then he gives them a warning. And you shall set limits for the people all around the mountain, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now, I want you to enter into the story. Let's say that we're going to do this as a group. And I said that we're going to go on a field trip and I'm going to take you to go meet God. And as we walk out, I want you to prepare your hearts. You have three days to get ready to meet with God. I would suggest most of us did not prepare ourselves to meet with God this morning at all. We rolled in and just hoped that we would catch up. He gave them three days to prepare their hearts to meet with God. We then set up a parameter that we go up to a mountain and we put up barriers that you're not allowed to get across. And I let you know, if anyone touches the mountain, we will kill you. The idea that you would cross over, I'm not going out after you, I will shoot from a distance and take you out because I'm not going to endanger myself. And you go, now, what moron would possibly cross the threshold? Ah, there are a lot of morons. (laughs) Almost always, they would have this in mind. Really? Seriously? We're going to go check out God. All right. We'll see how that works out. You know what? Quite frankly, whatever this light show is and whatever's going on, I don't know how they're doing it, but I'm going to go find out. There's the... Who cares? There's the curiosity. I want to know exactly what it's like. Why does Moses and the other guys get to go see God? I'm important to him too. For a variety of reasons, people had temptations to trespass, to go right through the barriers and do what they wanted to do because their fear of God was low. There are things that we do in our lives that I do in my life because I flat out don't think that God's going to smash me for it. Is that good? It goes on to say this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and Yahweh called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves 
lest I break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the perimeter. The Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but don't let the priests and the people break through to come up to me, lest I break out against them. And Moses went down to the people and told them. Soon thereafter, God issued out another invitation. He offered for Moses, Aaron, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were priests, and the 70 elders of Israel to come have lunch with him. And you would look and you say, well, what, what was that like? It's actually written down. In preparation for the event, Moses set up 12 pillars that would be for the 12 tribes of Israel. He set up an altar. They sacrifice oxen. He's pouring blood all over the altar, reads the word of God to everyone. They commit to God. He splashes blood all over them. There's this huge preparation event. And then the leaders go up to have lunch with God. It says this, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. It says, there was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now he told them that they must worship him from afar. But imagine this. Imagine from one side of the sanctuary to the other, God is there. You can see his throne room floor. Why do I call it that? Because in Revelation, at his throne room, there was like a sea of glass that extends out before him. That looks like a beautiful gem. That is the floor room of the throne. Now, here up on Mount Sinai, where God dwells, he has that out before him again. And they saw it, but only Moses could approach the throne. Then God invites Moses up for a second set of the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up with Joshua on the mountain. And this is how the scene is described. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring, devouring fire. On the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember, as Moses is walking through the desert, a bush erupts in fire. Do you remember that? And God spoke out of that. Not everybody can see that. So God lit a mountain on fire and all of Israel saw the burning mountain of which God spoke out of. It was a mega version of that small initial incident. So how are we so far? Are we nervous in the presence of God? Because we ought to be. It says 40 years later or 30 years later, reflecting back, Moses talks about these times before God. And he's reflecting back and writing it down, his thoughts, God's thoughts about what it was like. Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, God said, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. 
And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He continued, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of the tribes and your elders. And you said, behold, Yahweh, our God has shown to us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die for this great fire will consume us? If we hear the voice of Yahweh, our God, anymore, we shall die. What's intriguing is this is what God said. Verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. Some of us need a fresh touch of God to strike the fear of God into our hearts all over again. Some of us need a Mount Sinai incident. How is that going to look? I don't know. That's between you and God. But you have walked into a church that has cast our crowns before the Father and said, may your Holy Spirit do as he wishes. So in our midst, in this church... The Holy Spirit can do anything he wants. And we're going to pray that he walks through us today. And for those that need a healthy dose of the fear of God, may he bring it. We're going to spend some time in prayer. I'm going to pray for you. We'll have a few moments of silence. And then we will get in to the remainder of the message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we honor you and we respect you. As a congregation, as leadership, you are the head of this church. You are the head of everything. You own this world, this earth, and our lives. You hold our existence in the palm of your hand. We ask that you would visit us today in a tangible way. We pray that those of us that need a reminder of your might... That, Holy Spirit, you would walk through us and strike our hearts with your power. We offer up our lives to you, and we ask that you would show us who you are.
we offer up our time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. And I believe that this passage will come alive. It says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and a gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now you know what he's talking about. He said, you are not approaching a physical mountain. We're not talking about the old way of doing things, the old covenant, because the whole Mount Sinai incident was designed to scare the living daylights out of people. The whole thing was organized to let them know the power of God that they're not in control. The whole thing was a light show and a power show to demonstrate you better take God seriously. Because there are some of us who will only be motivated out of respect and fear to do what is right. He said, but we're not doing that anymore. We don't want to live there. We don't want to live at the mountain of judgment. Because that's what it was. God was warning them, if you follow my ways, things will go well for you. But make no mistake, the fire and the power you see here today will rain down judgment on you if you are disobedient. That is Mount Sinai. But we have come, it says, verse 22, but you, as a believer of Jesus Christ, the son or daughter of God, under a new covenant, you have come to Mount Zion. Now, where's Mount Zion? It's Jerusalem. How do we know that? Well, when David first bought the threshing floor to begin to set up an altar of God, that was Mount Moriah. And in that area, there was a mountain range where he ultimately was going to set the foundations and it encapsulated what was known as Jerusalem, owned by the Jebusites. Mount Zion, that range right there, having the holy city built on it, became synonymous that Mount Zion and Jerusalem were one and the same. So whenever you hear in the Old Testament and we turn our eyes towards Mount Zion, it means that we focus towards Jerusalem because that's the mountain range it sits on. He said, when we come to Mount Zion, and I'm not talking about the physical city being able to touch that mountain. I'm talking about the old school way of doing things that were represented at Mount Sinai. I'm talking about the new covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. When you come to that, you're coming to a whole different scene. You're not coming to the dark and the gloom and the fear and the scary judgment. You are coming to something quite different. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the place where God dwells. You, and when you arrive there, you come to innumerable angels in festal gathering where they're celebrating the mighty victories of their God. You come to the assembly of the firstborn, the Christians and the saints who have died in Jesus, who are, quote, enrolled in heaven in the Lamb's book of life. You have come to God. When you hear the phrase God in the New Testament, I would suggest that you should think Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, what it's all about. 
You have come to God, the judge of all, the controller of our universe. And to the spirits of the righteous, the believers made perfect by the cross. And you have come to Jesus, fully God, fully man, glorified at the right hand of the Father, the mediator of a new covenant, a new way that he inaugurated, that he started, and that he manages and finishes. And you come to the sprinkled blood that was shed by Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Well, when Abel was killed by his brother Cain, it was unfair. His brother took him out, should never have done that. And so Abel's blood, his example, was crying out for what? Justice and judgment. God, why did you let this happen to me? Make it right. But Jesus' blood cries out something else. Not make it right, but make it good. That Jesus' blood cries out grace, forgiveness, mercy, kindness, unmerited favor. One mountain is about judgment. One mountain is about coverage. One mountain is about scaring. One mountain is about saving. As children of God today, we approach a mountain of freedom. A mountain of wholeness. So... How do we then reconcile all of this? Well, first of all, we have to wrap our minds in the idea of who God is. Because we cannot forget Mount Sinai. Mount Zion doesn't make any sense until you understand Mount Sinai. You can't have good news without bad news. The bad news is we're condemned before God. The good news is there's a way by which to be saved. That's the gospel. And the first thing we have to do is understand the nature of God, which there is one word in Scripture that seems to encapsulate the mystery of God, and it's the word holy. You know how we sing songs that have a refrain that say, holy, holy, holy. And we talked about in Revelation how that is a song that is sung before the throne by the cherubim forever after. Why? Because the word holy in one term, describes that God is other. We keep saying things like, well, God's kind of like us, but better. And that's not true. He's actually of a whole other sort of which we have no way of describing him. When you say holy, you mean he is something other. When you say holy, you mean that he is pure. He is so intense and so right and so good that we would explode in his presence if we were not provided for. When you sing the word holy, when you say the word holy, I want you to have a spirit of awe that sinks into your heart. And here's what's most shocking about all of it. God says, be holy, for I am holy. What is the mandate upon believers but to be that? Pure, other, magnificent. The context of all this is simply that this the author is talking to a bunch of jews that want to go back to the old covenant they're tired of being persecuted for the jesus thing they want to bail out and go back to the moses way and the author is going you're going back to sinai really 
You're going to walk away from Mount Zion and you're going to go back to Mount Sinai. Do you want judgment? Is that what you're telling me? You want it where, oh, God's fiery and mean and only one guy can approach him only if he does everything right. And is that the one you want? You really want to leave grace and go back to justice. Is that what you want? Do you want to leave grace and go back to legalism? How could you possibly do that? How would you trade this mountain for that mountain? It doesn't even make sense. Simply put, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God spoke in the Old Testament. He is now speaking what he desires for mankind. When you read the word of God, you don't get to say, I'll think about it. Your answer is only, yes, Lord. That's it. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, Old Testament folk, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Jesus is the right hand of God. He has not only given us the Old Testament, but the New Testament. And he's spoken into our lives what God desires. He's spoken the good news, the way to God. And we spit on that or we are apathetic towards that or we walk away from that. How is that possible? What, that's not going to wreak havoc in our lives? Of course it is. At that time on Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. Now, let me ask you this. You do remember that um, when Jesus Christ on the cross said, it is finished, the curtain was torn in two and there was a massive earthquake. Do you remember that? It actually opened up the graves and dead people rose. I don't know if you know that part of the story either. But when Jesus Christ died, there was an earthquake. Why are earthquakes following God around? It's because it said at Mount Sinai and the whole earth was trembling. It was shaking. That's called an earthquake. Now, why are earthquakes following God? Well, I actually have to ask you. I'm going to give you my opinion but I don't know by experience. Let me just see a show of hands. How many of you have been in a significant earthquake? Raise your hands. Look around. Do you see how many people that is? That's a lot. So I need to ask you, because I have lived in California my entire life. I was born here, raised here, both southern and northern. I've never felt an earthquake in my entire life. How that's possible, I have no idea. So I'm going to ask you, if you've been in a significant earthquake, let me tell you what the stats say, and then you tell me from your own personal experience. Science shows that the reason why earthquakes are so unsettling is because something moves that shouldn't move. We're all quite certain that whatever else moves in the world, dirt should stay there. Right? I mean, we do everything. It is the very foundation upon which we build our homes, we build our buildings, we build our lives. That is the one true, you stay there. Don't move. I can run on you, I can jump on you, but you don't go anywhere. An earthquake unsettles the very foundation of our world. The dirt moves. That unsettling feeling, where are you going to run? If your world is moving... You can't fly. You can't go away from it. You are at its mercy. I would suggest to you that earthquakes follow God around because he's a foundation shaker. I think he is unsettling everyone and unhinging everyone and saying, what, you think this is scary because I can shake your little ball? 
Oh, look at that. Look at that. I can make the earth spin like that. I can rattle it, right? At Mount Sinai, he rattled the very earth that they stood on and let them know, I'm in charge. I'm the foundation of who you are. But check this out. Look in the verse. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What, are you going to fly away from me? Watch this. I will take your entire universe in my hand and throw it against the wall. And I will shatter everything that you know. It is not bigger than me. It's minute in my hands. The phrase once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What can't be shaken? Anything that's eternal that God designs to be eternal. Everything else is up for grabs. Think about it this way. We think there is so much that is untouchable in our lives that will never get rocked. That will never be up for grabs. That will never be in danger. If you live long enough, don't you realize that there is actually nothing that God cannot shake? Indeed, at the end, it says when Jesus returns, he will melt down all that we know and refashion it and bring new life, a new heavens and a new earth. That is built for our eternal existence. He's that big. Therefore, verse 28. Since God is in charge and all powerful. Let us be grateful. Not just in thoughts and in heart. But how we act. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. That cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God in response for who he is and what he has done, acceptable worship. That suggests that a lot of us are offering unacceptable worship. What's unacceptable worship? Half-heartedness. Plastic. Empty. What is acceptable worship? The Bible defines it for us. Jesus said it doesn't matter whether we worship on that mountain or that mountain for the kind of worshiper that God desires is those that worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? It means all in. It means worship with abandon. It means live as if God matters. It means saying, yes, Lord. It means surrender and submission. That is what God desires. That is acceptable sacrifice. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. If you do not have awe, I ask you, why not and how are you going to get it back? It's one of the things that I am currently working on and trying to figure out how God has more freedom to rain down power in our church. I believe that we are largely powerless in comparison to what God desires. It's an embarrassment to me. It's not your fault. It rests upon my shoulders to navigate and say, God, what do you want? Because ultimately, all power comes from God. You can't manufacture it. You can't fake it. You can't just say, oh, now we're going to suddenly have power. What you do is you say, Heavenly Father, do you want to reign power in our place? And if so, get out of his way. 
So we, as we move forward, are going to consistently pursue means by which we get out of his way and let him have his way in our place because we are lacking awe. We need more of it. And you need more of it in your life. And maybe you don't have any awe because your prayer life stinks. How do I know that? Because I think that's part of my problem. Maybe you have no awe because you're living in such sin that God doesn't want to bring in all this intense blessing and power because it would seem to indicate he's cool with how you live. He doesn't want to encourage that. So he holds off until you grow up. How do I know that? Because that might be my problem as well. What is our problem here at Bridgeway? Do we have a problem? One of two things is occurring. Because we do see power here. But I don't believe it's to the degree that God wants. We see changed lives. We see transformation. We see the Holy Spirit move in our midst. We watch things happen that do not happen in the regular world. But to the degree that God wants, I don't believe so. So one of two things is happening. Either the Holy Spirit is tracking on timing. And he said, no, I'm not doing that right now. That's not what I want to do. I'm going to hold off until something else occurs and there I'll be glorified or we're in the way. I just have to make sure we're not in the way. I'd much rather it be a timing issue, right? So that's what we're working on. It says, therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Consuming fire. What does that mean? means that once God gets going, he's going to take you all over. Uh, let's use a fire analogy. Um, if you've ever seen wildfire talk with people at CDF or watch TV or know things about firefighters, a lot of times there's an inability to contain a fire by um, uh, shutting it down or, or covering it. And so what you'll notice is in a lot of outdoor fires in terms of wildfires in forests and things like that, what the... CDF has to do is they jump out ahead of it and they cut fire breaks. You guys know what a fire break is? What you're trying to do is starve out the fuel of the fire. So you cut huge swaths of land where there's nothing to burn. And so the fire can only go up to the edge and then has to stop. But maybe you've seen this on TV. It's pretty wild and it's rare they can capture it. But sometimes the fire jumps the brakes. You ever seen that? Where the fire's raging so fast, it almost leaps over to get the food on the other side. And then it keeps firing, and then all of a sudden they go, oh shoot, we gotta go cut another break. Here's what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that in our lives, many times, we want God to only consume that which we offered to Him, and then we cut fire breaks all the way around and assume that God won't go there. But every once in a while, the fire of the Holy Spirit will jump your break. And keep burning. And consume you alive. Why? Because he's not content staying in your little area. Our God is a consuming fire. What does all this mean? It means that we somehow have to balance the respect and awe and fear of God. While yet at the same time understanding his grace and his love and his gentleness. Can we do that? Are we ever going to be mature enough to handle that? Or are we still 
like an immature person that has to flip-flop. Oh my gosh, either God's too scary, I don't want to be around him. Or God's a nobody and I can walk over him. Where do we find that balance? Where do we find that center zone? God's power remains. We have been engaging in too little of it to carry around respect properly in our hearts. How are you going to restore the awe of God? Maybe we need to get into a place where he is moving actively in a scary way. Because I'll tell you, awe sure makes living a lot more enjoyable, a lot more fun. Listen. If we don't fear God, our world is too big. Stop reducing God in your sight. I understand that you want him small enough to manage. But if he is, he's no good for you. And the reason and the way that we do that is we listen to language every day from the world that tells us that our God's not big enough. What voices are you listening to? Are you listening to voices of faith? Are you listening to voices that would tell you the magnitude of God, that speak of his testimony and his value and his power? Is he being magnified in your mind or minimized by what you surround yourself with? Life will give you enough hits to fight that and make it shrink in your mind. God doesn't do this. God can't do that. We need to stimulate the faith in our world so that God is rightful size. Amen? Let's close in prayer, and I'll give you the final challenge. We'll roll out of here. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Indeed, we offer ourselves afresh to you and ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in our midst. Father, if you want to bring fire down before us to demonstrate your power and might, we willingly receive that. Holy Spirit, if you want to break out among your people in a glorifying way, we offer free hearts to you. But Lord, what we are trying to do is to understand you for who you are, and just because you're kind to us, Lord, we don't want you to be weak in our minds. For God, you are more mighty than our troubles. You are more powerful than our fears. And you're strong enough to save. We give you glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.